This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to Pub Weekly Radio. That's Pub WKLY Radio. Today, we'll get to talk with literary agent Jason Allen Ashlock, who will tell us all about the backroom book deals that shape the publishing industry. Then PW Fiction Reviews editor Mike Harvke will bring us a look ahead to some of summer's big books. But first, let's dip into the Publishers Weekly Radio Mailbox. Uh, we have a question on Twitter from oh, Fantasy Book Crit, uh, who asks, how do you get a toe into the publishing field if you don't have a background in literature or the arts? Oh, well, that's, uh, you know, I think uh, so many people who are writers don't necessarily have a background in literature and the arts. And I think the one thing uh, that, I, and, and this is wondering if you wanted to work in, in, in the book publishing world uh, or, or if you simply wanted to write, I mean, uh, working in the book publishing world, it seems to be one of the, one of the uh, areas where you could have a broad liberal arts background to get in though. Um, if you want to work for you know, a magazine or a book publishing company, it is pretty competitive. And a, a lot of people start, Start off with unpaid internships. Yeah, that's definitely true. But you can come from any segment of and of any industry, really. And often having a background in a different industry can give you an edge. Uh, for example, if you have a background in the sciences, you could start with science journalism or uh, look into scientific publications, maybe science textbooks. Mm -hmm. um, often, especially for educational publishing, it's really important to have somebody editing or proofreading that textbook who kind of knows what's going on, who can not only say, do these numbers add up? And and, and you know, handle the basic arithmetic, but says, oh, no, that's not helium. You mean hydrogen. Mm, sure. And the same thing, I think, goes for other special fields like business. I mean, there are Absolutely. so many people who are, you know, so many editors who aren't necessarily well-versed in the world of business. And to have someone who has the, the knowledge and the writing ability uh, is something that might be an asset. Definitely. And, and the, the sirens we're hearing in the background here outside the windows of our office are also making me think that if you have a you know, background on the police force or in the uh, fire department or even in city government, um, if you later want to turn to investigative reporting, that, that kind of uh, investigative background as a profession or an understanding of what goes on within within government and within these kind of uh, services can be extremely helpful. And it can give you connections. Sure. Yeah. And especially, I mean, as a writer, I mean, how many nonfiction books do we get by, by uh, investigators or former police officers or even current police officers? Absolutely. So, you know, writing a book is not a bad way to get yourself into publishing. This is true. Uh, but if you want to be working in publishing, I agree that internships are often the way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can, if you can get into a, a publishing program in a university, then you may get some advance notice of internships that are opening up. But social media is making it much, much easier for people to see job ads from you know, surprising places. I just saw an ad come across my desk for an anthology editor for Girls Right Now, which mm -hmm. is a nonprofit organization that uh, helps girls and young women who want to be writers. Right. And they're looking for someone to edit an anthology of stories from the girls that they've been been working with and yeah that just showed up on twitter one day wow and and that's not yeah. you know what i would think of as in publishing but it's a great opportunity for someone who's you know, interested in doing editorial work right and uh you know, there there's basically when people ask me how to break into editing particularly i say look around you and anywhere that you see text somebody edited it so if you see a billboard if you see an ad on the side of a bus um I, a ideally point. if you if you see a, a menu at a restaurant uh you know, maybe 
not every restaurant, but certainly once you get up to bigger chains or very fancy restaurants where a typo would be very embarrassing, right. you know, there's probably somebody they hired to just look over their menu and make sure that uh, the the accents on creme fraiche are what they should be. Oh, this is true. This is true. Well, also on our own website, uh, Publishers Weekly website, we have a list of uh, job postings as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the PW Job some, Zone is yeah, a, exactly. a good good opportunity. But I, I would just say, you know, look around for ways of working with words that don't necessarily uh, directly come from the publishing world and then try and, and uh, make a lateral move, sure. yeah. as they say. And if, you're, if your way of uh, getting access into the world is, you mean by writing, uh, or to be a writer to get published, I would recommend that you simply just start writing. Yes, you cannot have a book published if you do not have a book to exactly. publish. Um, this, this sounds like the most basic advice, and yet you'd be amazed how many people I hear from who say, I have a book about 80% done. I said, well, then, you know, the, your next job is to do the other 20%. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it, can be, it can be really difficult to, to finish oh, off a project man. like that. Yeah. When I think of how many knitting projects I have where all I have to do is weave in the ends and they'll be done. And yet somehow I never quite managed to, to get them finished. So I'm sure, I'm sure writing is the same way. Sure. Yeah. 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 It just needs that last bit of polish and somehow you can't quite you make can't yourself quite do it. You can't quite bring yourself to do it. Yep. 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 <laughs> but you have to start there. You have to actually write the book and... If if you've put your heart into it and you've worked hard on it, uh, then then that's that's always a great start. Great. And after that, uh, you know, there there are plenty of uh, websites out there and plenty of books for offering you know, very good advice for people who want to break in and get their first books published or self publish. Yeah. And uh, many 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 resources out there for that. And we'll be talking about various opportunities throughout. Uh, the the show and throughout our our other programs to to talk about ways one gets you know one could get published through traditional publishing or through self publishing absolutely and I bet our uh, guest uh, later on today Jason Ash- Allen Ashlock will uh, shed a little bit of light on that yes I'm from sure an agent's will. perspective from an agent's perspective indeed which is a perspective you don't get to hear very often so yes exactly. very pleased we're going to have him on here. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're answering some questions from our fans on Twitter. Uh, here's a question from a fellow called Weird Mage. He says, how, does, how much does the corporate bottom line actually impact what books get published? Well, that's a good question. I, I think the publishing world has changed quite a bit uh, over the decades, where it was once considered a quote-unquote gentleman's uh, uh, business um, venture, where where perhaps advances weren't as big, um, and and there, there, one wasn't expected to make a huge profit from books. Uh, but now things have changed as more and more publishing companies have been bought by larger uh, larger corporations. There there really is a bottom line, and I think. Agents, you know, editors when they're acquiring, publishers are acquiring, are looking to see what books can sell or what books will sell or what has the biggest potential to sell. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think that there are so many publishers out there. I mean, even in the bigger houses, editors who say, you know what, I don't know what the sales potential of this book is going to be, but I'm willing to take a chance because it is such a solid book. This is a great book. I'd love to see this have some sort of life out there. But more and more, Rose, have you been seeing in, in so many of your own publishing, you know, publishing connections and uh, the books that you see um, by perhaps even smaller houses like, you know, like the ones I've seen um, mm-hmm. uh, in various genres, that there are plenty of programs out there, publishing houses out there that are willing to do books that where, where profit isn't necessarily the bottom line. Or Absolutely. The, I mean, many university presses, I think, are taking up the slack on some literary fiction, even that that bigger houses may not be willing to take a chance on. I've certainly seen in science fiction, fantasy, and romance, which are the, the genres I primarily cover, that often um, smaller presses are much more willing to take chances because they have less to lose. Right, and yeah. so I mean, they're they're still concerned with the bottom line, but they are also you don't start a publishing house, you know, a tiny little press, unless you're absolutely devoted to the written word. Sure, and these are people often uh, with with specific ideas of what kinds of works they want to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I'm editing uh, an anthology for a small press called Cross Genres, uh, which is very exciting. And uh, they specialize in 
uh, fiction that they have speculative fiction that deals with uh, people whose voices don't get heard very often. Right. So, uh, for example, they published an anthology of science fiction about fat women called Fat Girl in a Strange Land, uh, because every cover you look at has you know, the svelte young 36, 24, 36 mm -hmm. Which woman is often in a skin tight space suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and they got tired of that. And they said, right. you know, let's, let's have some heroines who do not you know, fit this this playboy model mm -hmm. uh and and i think it's really interesting to see people taking chances like that i'm sure you know they didn't do some some sort of exhaustive market research that showed them that there's really this this market of people craving stories right. uh of, of this particular type but they said you know we have an obligation to our fans uh you know to to readers of fantasy and science fiction to say you know women of all shapes all sizes are welcome in our fiction and and they really they took that on as uh as a political statement sure and that that matters much more to them i mean it's nice to make money it is but it's also nice to reach to to do something knowing that you will reach some sort of readership mm -hmm. someone who this this kind you know whatever it is you're publishing is going to speak to the readers and and even though it may not speak to the mass readers as so much you know maybe mass mass market fiction or mass market nonfiction publications that are coming out it there is an audience for it yeah, and the, and the anthology project that I'm working on, uh, which is called Long Hidden, uh, is specifically historical mm. speculative fiction featuring the voices of marginalized people. So really? uh, it, people who, who've been who've been pushed to the side and, and have not gotten their chance in the spotlight and stories that have been told badly or not told at all. So laborers' stories or the, mm. the stories of people who have been enslaved or you know, the stories of queer people or people with mental illness mm -hmm. in a time when this was not at all accepted Right. And, uh, and we, we raised funds for it through Kickstarter, which is a great way of making sure that there is an audience and of, of meeting our financial obligations. And this actually let us pay the authors uh, what's considered pro rates. Uh, so this is a what that means is that it's a qualifying publication for membership in a professional writers organization. Right. Uh, and and the response was tremendous. And we we hit our goal you know, within within a week of starting the the Kickstarter, and it's it's just um, wow. it's been it's been incredible seeing that that there really are people out there who want to make this happen. So crowdfunding is a great way of dealing with that bottom line mm -hmm. question. Sure. And how did you uh, solicit? pieces for this i mean for for many of our uh listeners and would-be writers out there oh uh, we we just send an email emails out to everyone we could think of who we'd want to see in this so uh, you know some of it was very far-fetched and the first person i wrote to was juno diaz and i i was pretty sure he'd be too busy to to chime in and he wrote back and said can't do it but what a great project and great. you know if, even someone saying you know that sounds terrific it's it's very very motivating, oh, sure, very sure, encouraging. Sure. Uh, and, and we got some incredible people signed up. So Victor Laval, um, Beverly Jenkins, who is our, our guest on the radio show. Oh, fantastic. Uh, who mostly does historical romance and, and was eager to try her hand at uh, speculative fiction Great. With, with a historical setting. So um, it's really it's really been pretty pretty incredible wow with just those two names it sounds like it's, it's going <laughs> to be a great and, book and anyway. many more uh sure. people who are, who are mostly familiar to science fiction writers and readers like Nnedi Okorafor, Aliette de Bodard, Ken Liu, Amala Mukhtar, uh really just incredible people with awards and award nominations and and a real commitment to this to this idea of uh, amplifying marginalized voices and here we even have people who like uh, beverly jenkins and victor laval who 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 can make a living or a pretty good living on their on their own writing or at least subsidized with teaching but here they are really eager to and interested in in contributing to this book by a, uh, a smaller publisher. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, the bottom line, absolutely, as, as you say, affects writers as much as it affects publishers. Right. Uh, there's certainly um, the... I've I've turned down projects because they didn't pay me enough as a sure. as a writer as a freelance editor. Everybody has to make a living and, yeah. and make sure that something is worth their time. But again, I mean, if you think about any number of projects you might have taken on on a volunteer basis, it be being paid a lot lo lower than market rates because it's very dear to your heart. Publishers do the same thing. Yes, exactly. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, literary agent Jason Allen Affleck will reveal how publishing sausage is made. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got literary agent Jason Allen Ashlock on the line. He's the co-founder and president of Movable Type Management. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me. So the bio you sent us says your company is, quote, a literary management firm that fosters storytelling across platforms, devices, territories, and generations. So that's a lot to squeeze into one little sentence. And I was hoping we could... I was hoping we could kind of break it down one piece at a time and talk about uh, what you do kind of from with that as a as a starting point. So getting very basic, what is a literary management firm? Well, fundamentally, we look a lot like a literary agency, meaning we our job is to to look out across the, the landscape and find great talent, good storytellers, people with big ideas, people with something interesting to package into book form. And our job is to help them find a publishing partner to get that message out into the world. The reason we don't call ourselves literary agents, we call ourselves literary managers, is because Mm -hmm. we look at our job as a bit more expansive than that. We don't just find great stories and and people with big ideas and sell them to big publishing houses. We also look broader than that to any possible partnerships that would help an author or an idea generator tell their story or share their idea more widely. So sometimes that's going to be a big book publisher, and that looks like literary agency. But Mm -hmm. sometimes that's going to be digital products, and sometimes that's going to be film and television, and sometimes that's going to be audio. Sometimes that's going to be something we haven't thought of yet, Uh, and we want to be positioned to make any of those relationships happen. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, great. Now, so what do you mean by fostering storytelling? Uh, And across, I I take it across platforms. What do you mean by that? Are we talking electronic, digital, and and traditional print? Exactly. We're, We're talking about looking at a story and asking how can the story best be told. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means a print book and a physical edition of the story. And we love books. We're in love with books. That's why we got into the business. But sometimes stories and ideas are shared better in other formats and across other platforms. Sometimes that's digital. Sometimes that's physical. Sometimes that's a blend of two. Sometimes that's a consumer encountering a text in the old-fashioned way in which they read it in a linear fashion. Sometimes mm-hmm. that that means they want to confront an idea in a more experiential way in which they're producing alongside of it. So when we say across platforms, we're trying to say that it's the story that matters most and how it gets expressed is really a function of that story itself. So that's our fundamental value from it. Are you doing like film and television as well, or is this really just about text? No, we're doing a performance as well. We have an L.A. office that's run by my business partner, um, whose sole job it is to find ways to translate our stories into print, uh, film and television properties. And then I run the books and digital division in New York, where my main goal is to find ways of telling these stories in print and digital form. And you're primarily working with and for the author. Is that correct? Yes, always. We want to stand as close as possible to the author. Uh, We look out at the publishing landscape that's being uh, disrupted at a rapid pace, and we feel like the the best, most promising position to be in is to stand as close to the author, to the creator as we can, help them tell their stories. You know you guys at PW have been covering the the disintermediation of the publishing business for years. You know, the idea that the people who used to play middlemen roles are being kicked out. Uh, and uh, now authors and readers are finding each other through non-traditional means. So as the, as the industry gets disintermediated, we just want to stand right next to the author and look out across the landscape and say, how can we tell your story better? Tell us, from your standpoint, how has publishing changed where what you're doing is is, is offering writers something something else? Well, you know, I think that the old model of publishing was very linear. There was a value chain, the produced the work on one end and passed it along to an agent and to a publisher uh, through editorial and design to a wholesaler, finally to a retailer. And then eventually at the very end of that chain, there was the reader. And and that linear progression of of the idea through the process to the market was really steady. And now new technology has interrupted that process. It's not linear anymore. Authors and readers are not necessarily using the traditional path to find one another. Uh, they're using new technologies and new platforms to engage with stories and to tell each other stories and share ideas in ways that don't often use the traditional players. You know, what it used to do was basically preside over a very small 
a slot in that value chain between the author and the publisher. But now I have to preside over multiple relationships so because I'm not just selling a book to a big media company like Random House or Harper. I'm looking at any possible partnership, uh, a new technology platform, a new discovery mechanism, a new way of telling stories, whatever would help me get that author's value in front of the people who would enjoy it. So in that way, I think, you know, the agent might still look like agents of years past, but right. fundamentally what we're doing and the questions we're asking, I think, are much more broad and in a way, I think, much more exciting. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with literary manager Jason Allen Ashlock. You also mentioned about territories and generations in, in your bio. And when, by territories, how does that work with different platforms? Do you mean physical territories like U.S. versus Canada, the rights, various rights? Yes, that's right. The idea um, of the agent being a vital player in the life of an author can be seen in this way maybe most clearly, and that is that new technology platforms allow us to share stories with one another in new ways, but the rights transactions that are involved in translating a work and sharing it in a new territory and spreading it across the world really only get more complex in a digital age. Uh, so the role of the agent, the traditional role of overseeing all those transactions and managing all those licensing deals, making sure that the work finds its way into the hands of readers, not just in this country, but in any country, uh, that's something we work hard to do and to find the right partners to make that possible. The generations part of the claim is merely a nod to the fact that we think storytelling, really good stories are timeless. Uh, that they don't um, only exist in, in, in one moment, but they have an ability to speak to people of different ages and at different times in their lives. And if we do our job well, they last long after we're gone. It's one of the things that I think is most attractive of the idea of the book, that it feels like you can point at this thing, know it has existed, that it will always exist in some way, that it's definitive proof you existed. Uh, and we're, we're interested in telling stories that are going to last. Uh, and that's what that gesture is towards. Let's go back to the international territories for a bit. And I think that a lot of people are often confused by the idea of international territories, particularly for digital books. It seems like you should be able to just download a file from anywhere in the world because the Internet is a global thing. But it doesn't always work that way. So can you explain a little bit why that is? Sure. Well, because fundamentally ebooks are are really just containers too. You know, they feel digital, they feel webby, like they're they're the internet, but they're really not the internet. They're uh, they're containers, just like physical books are containers, and they have a system of rights that control how they can be used and how they can be experienced and how they can be shared. And this isn't unfamiliar to anyone who's consumed any kind of electronic product. If you try to watch a DVD in, in the UK, and you can't watch it, maybe if you bought it in the US, or if you uh, buy a song in, in one territory, or you're listening to Pandora or Spotify, you may not be able to listen to that same song in another territory. So with books, however, it confused people a bit because we feel like they ought to be free and ubiquitous. And because we read so much text on the web, when we read text in a book, we feel like it should function the same way. But right. in fact, the same rules apply. The same rights constraints apply to ebooks as much as they do to physical books. And it's our job to sort of navigate that uh, shifting landscape. Do you feel like that idea is getting outdated, or do you think it really is going to endure even as we go through this digital revolution? Well, I think the idealistic part of me would hope that the, the books would become more webby and they would become more like the Internet and their uh, global accessibility. But I think we have to be realistic that as long as these pieces of content, uh, these really valuable book properties are controlled by big media companies, just like film and just like music, the same constraints are going to apply. Uh, I don't think, in other words, that we're heading to a time of more simplicity and, and more ease of access. If anything, we're probably heading into a time of more complexity. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we are talking with literary manager Jason Allen Ashlock. Now, the deals that you're making right now are for books that might be published uh, a year or two or even longer in the future. So I was wondering, do you, do you have your, your thumb on the pulse of the hot publishing trends in 2015? Can you, can you see the future? <laughs> yeah, I suppose there is a bit of a crystal ball quality to what we do in publishing, given the long delay from the moment we sell a book to a publisher to the time it comes out in the market. And although that time frame is shrinking a bit, books are getting out faster and faster, there's still this lag that's part of the system, it's part of the retail system. So, yeah, we are looking far ahead. I mean, I'm seeing a couple interesting things happen. I, I have been 
uh, really enamored of and continue to be enamored of the trends in cookbooks and in lifestyle books towards the micro, meaning we're still seeing a bunch of books about, you know, popcorn or pizza or nachos or kombucha or <laughs> Korean food. I mean, the, the idea of the big cookbook that has recipes across a wide categories is sort of gone. We're, we're seeing a lot of deals for, for smaller, more targeted cookbooks and lifestyle books, uh, which is really, really very fun. I, I saw one last year that did so well that was just cake pops. Uh, I've seen a deal deal recently that was just about pizza, just about homemade pizza. Of course, there's the vegan and the vegetarian stuff. So that's been fun to watch, to see sort of cookbooks divide themselves up into these really uh, focused categories. And why do you think that is? I mean, do you think that that people are able to explore single subjects with just as much breadth now as they were, say, an entire cuisine, or or is it because of maybe you know one? You know, I've had a couple of panels on uh, recipes, online recipes, and where are home cooks going for the recipe? You know, to cook the family meal, is it online or is it in a cookbook? Yeah, I, well, I, I, like anything in books, I feel like we're at a moment where a lot of different factors are converging to determine the direction of some of these trends. Uh, but I would guess that, yes, it's, it's part, partly the foodie culture and our awareness and, and um, our level of education about food has ramped up at a vertigo-inducing rate over the past 10 years. Like, everybody's a foodie. Everybody's into food culture now. Uh, we all sort of have tastes and and opinions that a few years ago we might not have had. And that's, you know, due to maybe Top Chef and due to the celebrity chef phenomenon, et cetera. So and Instagram. Just, don't, don't forget, and, we, all, yeah. we all take photos of our dinners. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yes, they're a photo of other people's dinners. Um, so I think that's part of it. But I think another part of it is what you just said, Mark, that um, I think we are accustomed now because of our fluency on the web to really getting specific. Uh, we don't just want uh, general recipes. We want to drill down and really get to the specifics. And books might be, in a way, reflecting that web trend that allows us to really narrow. Uh, maybe these niche cookbooks are, in a sense, the result of like a cultural Boolean search, <laughs> you know, in which we are right. really drilled down into what we want. What a great phrase. <laughs> I love that. And, and I definitely, um, I just organized my cookbooks because I moved house recently. So it's, uh, it's been interesting seeing that, that trend in my own, my own shelves, too. Rose, when are you going to have us over for dinner? Oh, well, that's always the question, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm, I'm serving you a delicious meal right now through the radio. Alas, <laughs> alas it, it does not fully convey itself across the airwaves. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with literary manager Jason Allen Ashlock, and we're talking about trends, future trends in various books. And, Jason, I want to ask you about memoirs. I mean, I've seen the growth of memoirs from maybe the last five years as recently as that just kind of booming. Is this something that you're seeing growing and will continue to grow, or have we reached a, I don't know, peak memoir? Peak memoir, yeah, right. (laughs) I, I, I don't think it's going to slow down. I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for the big publishers to produce big memoirs, memoirs that work in the way that the Eat, Pray, Loves and the Glass Castles worked a few years ago. But the idea of people telling their life stories, looking at the book as a format in which they can narrativize their life and find meaning in it and share it with the people they love and share it with mm. people who would care about it, this is one of those categories that uh, this self-publishing and indie publishing and the technology platforms that allow us to share stories widely to anyone who would want to enjoy them. This is really the, the place where it, I find there's a lot of virtue in self-publishing in this space. But I'm actually holding a, a one right now that I'm just in love with uh, since you brought it up. Sure. It's called Son of a Gun. It's by Justin St. Germain. Uh, it's published by Random House. It's coming out this summer. Uh, and it's just a, a beautiful, heartbreaking literary memoir. And I think that's a category that can last, the idea of a literary memoir, where it's not just about the life story, but it's about the prose craft. It's mm-hmm. about the literary register of the writing on the page. Uh, and that, I think, can still, uh, still do a lot of book sales across the country and, and probably will for many years to come. Life writing may be the most virtuous kind, but uh, it, in that case, you know, let's go to sinful fiction. Uh, I was wondering if you if you have any uh, any prognostications for us there. Well, I've been delighted to see the uptick in crime 
fiction, uh, mm-hmm. not just broad, mm-hmm. not just James Patterson big thrillers, but but actually in the crime category. Um, you know, it's not just Law and Order, and it's not just Elementary. It's, it, it's not just working in TV. It's working in books right now too. And uh, really, sales in that category are. Uh, I mean, they're just exceptional, they're phenomenal. And what's been uh, really encouraging for those of us who have loved crime novels and crime fiction for some time is to see the the literary writers and the literary pens that are coming to this genre. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the Ian Rankins and the uh, 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 the Gone Girls, the Gillian Flynn, others who are really bringing a, a very high level of craft and storytelling. You know, this is not just hard-boiled uh, noir uh, sort of uh, pulp stuff that you imagine crime fiction to be from the 60s and 70s. This is some rich literary writing that just happens to be in the crime uh, space. So I'm really high on that category, and we're, we're investing a lot in, in seeking new writers in that space. But, of course, the big, as you say, sinful trend of the year uh, in 2012 was erotica. Uh, right. And whereas that, that may slow down or may sort of redefine itself a little bit in 2013, I see no reason to believe that's not going to be a really strong category for a long time to come. And thank you very much for saying erotica and not romance. I get so frustrated when I see the Fifty Shades books categorized as romance because I don't see them as really very romantic at all. Um, and the first one even uh, has nothing resembling a happy ending, which I think of as a as a prerequisite for romance publishing. So I'm glad to hear somebody differentiating between the two. I do think, I mean, obviously there's crossover between the two because they're about intimate relationships, but um, the the expectations of a reader picking up a romance novel versus picking up an erotic novel are quite different. Yes, well, this is your field. You're the expert here far more than I am, but I, I do agree with you from an outsider's perspective. I think that's a function of the fact that erotica and even romance, until very recently, were such uh, were sort of pushed aside to the periphery of mainstream publishing, so that even today the terms we use to describe them aren't very familiar to people. Right. <laughs> so we end up using the wrong one because we're not exactly, you know, we're not familiar. But I, that's obviously changing. I mean, if there's if any agent or publisher is not now educating themselves on the difference between erotic and romance, I certainly hope they will soon. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Where we're talking with literary manager Jason Allen Ashlock, who's just been telling us about the trends he's been seeing in. Uh, fiction as well as nonfiction. And I wanted to ask from your perspective as a literary manager, when you pick up a, a really hot memoir versus a really hot novel uh, as and you want to represent it, how does it affect the way that you do your work handling fiction versus nonfiction? Well, if it's memoir versus fiction, a lot of those processes are the same, mm. uh, by which I mean, you know, our analyzing the narrative structure, our talking about the prose register, our thinking about um, how we would talk about this story in its fullness. You know, there's a lot of similarity between those two things because both sure. have, you know, full narr- narrative arcs and full character development. But if we're talking about the difference between fiction and nonfiction, as in practical nonfiction or idea-driven nonfiction or business nonfiction, innovation, uh, mm-hmm. The difference is, is huge in, in that what we sell to a publishing house for uh, particular kinds of nonfiction is not a manuscript or even anything resembling a manuscript. It's a, it's a marketing document we call a proposal <laughs> that is uh, often skeletal and often very speculative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a very it's a very provisional document that contains a lot of information about what the book will be, um, but uh, doesn't actually contain a whole lot of the book as it is. So earlier in the show, we were actually um, we were answering a couple questions from our mailbag, and one of them was was a how do you break into publishing question, and pretty much the first thing Mark and I both said was, well, if you want to have a book published, you have to write the book. But it sounds like you're saying that's not the case with business publishing, that you know, if you want to have a book published, you propose a book, and only if the proposal is accepted do you then write the book. That's absolutely correct. For business, for politics, for um, you know, prescriptive and, and wellness, or fitness, or psychology, um, I would say last year of the 25 or 30 books I sold in nonfiction, almost all of them were sold on proposals uh, with, with only maybe 10 or 15 percent of the book written to give a taste of what it would look like on the page. Mm. Uh, right. And I think that's pretty common across the industry. I mean, there, there's actually an argument to be made that the book can be worth more when it's in proposal form than when it's in final form, <laughs> because you can still talk about what it might be and still talk about how it might change to be more what the publisher wants it to be. 
uh, as opposed to throwing the whole thing on their desk and saying it's done, it's written, take it or leave it. Now, how do agents know, such as yourself, what sorts of books publishers or editors are looking for? I mean, is this something that, are, are you thinking about certain books that I, I'd like to match this book with this editor or this house and, and try and find a writer who might write something like this or approach a writer? Or do you look at the manuscript at hand that's perhaps come across your desk and, and match it up and determine who's going to buy it? Yeah, it's really both and more. There are sometimes proposals that come across my desk that I think I know exactly the six or 10 or 12 people that would light up with this idea the way I just did. And then there are other times when you launch with an editor and and, uh, you look at their list and you think, I know the type of book they would like. And so you start casually sort of scanning for those types of books and maybe popular science or sports history or something like that. Eventually you find something you think will light that publisher up as well. But uh, it also, it also can go the other way where an agent has an idea for a book, just, you know, they've been charting trends. They've been watching books that have been published and succeeded and, and they find an idea they really love and end up trying to go find a writer to put it together uh, because they sort of seen the market opening for something like that. And, and because agents are sort of entrepreneurial players in the industry by nature, uh, I think a lot of that happens. I, I mean, we, we definitely get a lot of pitches from authors, and we, we are responding to what publishers are asking of us and what writers are bringing us. But there is this third way where uh, agents sort of uh, can create on their own. And um, another question we were asking earlier was uh, how the publisher's bottom line affects what gets published. But since you're talking about agents being entrepreneurial, I've also heard it said that agents can be very conservative because you get a commission based on sales and therefore you might be looking for what you're pretty sure is going to sell. But you know, do you think that also gives you the, the freedom to take chances? I and mean, how, how does that work within your own business model? I think most agents are a bit um, bipolar in this way. I think we try to split our list. You know, we try to be as diverse as possible within our property portfolio, if you want to call it that, that some of the things we sell we know are sure things, sure bets. Uh, with fiction, I think that's often where people gravitate. It's very difficult to sell fiction. So I think agents move towards that which is proven and, and sort of uh, in a category that they know is successful. Um but, you know, we're, I think we also have a properties in our portfolio that we know are more risky, but they just get us excited. Uh, we can't have a full docket of risky projects because we, if they all failed in the season, we, we'd be in trouble. Uh, so we try right. to do some sure bets mixed in with some things that excite us, too. Uh, and I, I think every agent's that way. E- even those that lean more conservatively or talk conservatively, they all have their passion projects, too. Ones that they, they probably think to themselves they shouldn't go after, but they just can't help it because they love it too much. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And finally, I have one last quick question. I know we have a lot of people listening who've written books or have been thinking about writing books um, and who would like to know how they can go about getting an agent. Can you give them the the quick rundown of how that works? You bet. Most agents (laughs) respond to what we call query letters, uh, which is a short one-page letter with three or four paragraphs describing who you are, what your project is, uh, and uh, why you think it should be successful in their list. Um, those agents can be found in a variety of websites uh, across the web. Publishers Marketplace is a good one. Um, reading the PW deal listings and seeing who agents and books that you like. Uh, most mm-hmm. agents are very accessible on the web, increasingly accessible on Twitter and, uh, and through their websites. Uh, so I encourage you to do research about the agents that are acquiring in your, in your category uh, and send them a professionally written letter making a case for why you fit in their list. We've been talking with literary agent Jason Allen Ashlock, co-founder and president of Movable Titan Management. Jason, thank you so much for talking with us. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Love your show. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Fiction Reviews editor Mike Harvkey is going to tell us about the hot books coming out this summer, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. And every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, fiction editor Mike Harvke has a sneak preview of some of the summer's hot books. So welcome, Mike. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's very good to, it's good have to be you back. Here. I should say. I've yeah. Done this before. Oh, well, He's our regular fiction person here. You're, you're an old old pro. So what do you got? Um, well. 
I have a few books, um, sort of starting with what is coming sooner and then uh, getting a little bit deeper into the uh, summer. One of the more anticipated books that uh, I hear people talking about is Benjamin Percy's Red Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rose, I know that you're familiar with this book. I, I Absolutely, think it's, it, it's one of those. It's one of those crossover books. It's a little hard to know how to how to categorize it. Do we call it supernatural? Do we call it a thriller? Do we call it literary fiction? Exactly, and especially because Benjamin Percy is has been known as a literary writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had two collections and then a novel called The Wilding, and all of those. Though they definitely had um, non-realist elements, um, were firmly in in literary fiction. Um, and I know that when he made this deal for Red Moon, which was a, I think a significant deal, he, um, you know, a lot of people said he's he's sort of crossed over, you know, into uh, into uh, genre. But this book, like all of his work, and if you kind of dig deeply into his work you just see all the elements all the elements are are in this that were in his uh story collection refresh refresh for instance Mm -hmm. and that story refresh refresh which was anthologized widely it was in best american i think in 2006 Mm. and it's the first thing that really got him his attention you know it was his second collection but the story was about primarily about these two sons whose fathers were both deployed to iraq and they passed the time, their te- adolescent uh, boys passed the time boxing and sort of getting into trouble. And, and refresh, refresh was them constantly refreshing their email, waiting for, you know, word from their fathers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, now we have Red Moon where, you know, a similar situation is in order with uh, soldiers being deployed um, to fight a lichen uh, terrorism network essentially, mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest, which is mostly where uh, all of his stuff has been said. And when you, when you say lichen, you mean as in lycanthropy, as in werewolves? <laughs> exactly. The hairy beasts that transform when the moon is out. I don't, I don't know exactly. In, <laughs> in, uh, that's, that's traditionally. And, and um, Percy you know, has a lot of fun in this book playing with not only elements of, of genre, but also elements of even werewolf lore. Because in this case... You know, he's talking about the werewolves have been living amongst us for mm-hmm. for a long time, and they are medicated and um, looked down upon. So their their natural instinct instincts are medicated away, and uh, and they're they're stigmatized in this, society. This couldn't possibly be a metaphor for mental illness. Well, um, it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that definitely doesn't sound like anyone. I I, oh no! Wait. Well, maybe. I think the book is probably rife with metaphors, and I, I think in this specific case, because it's, the parallels are, are very clear, uh, there are terrorism, there are, there are terrorist attacks, much like what happened on September 11th. Uh, simultaneous planes or uh, are brought down um, on a single day, um, and a network um, of lichens are take take responsibility for it. And um, you know, Percy introduces the four main uh, narrative uh, threads of the novel pretty quickly. There's a teenage boy who's the sole survivor of those three plane crashes. Mm-hmm. There's another teenager who's a girl, but she's a lichen who's on the run from government agents who killed her parents. Um, that girl's aunt, who has defected from the lichen resistance movement, which took responsibility for the uh, terrorist attacks. And then there's the uh, opportunistic governor, governor of Oregon, who's you know using the fear, the public sphere, for his own gains. He wants to run for president, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he just lets this play out in a in a gripping. Uh, you know, quite thick, uh, but page-turning novel. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with PW Fiction Reviews editor Mike Harvke, who's been telling us about some hot books coming out this summer. So that was Red Moon by Benjamin Percy. He said it's coming out in May. Yeah. And uh, sticking with the red theme, um, I've got a book called The Blood of Heaven um, by Kent Wascom mm-hmm. coming out in June. I'm into this book now, and I'm really comparing it, and I think a lot of people probably will, to Blood Meridian, Cormac McCarthy's ah, right. uh, book about the uh, violent uh, westward expansion in the mid-19th century. Um, Wascom has, you know, we, we've said in our review, he's made brilliant use of a little-known chapter in American history, um, setting this in the Louisiana Territory in 1799. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got 
two main characters. One is a, a boy named Angel, who's the son of a hellfire and damnation preaching man, um, who runs off with uh, another preacher's son into uh, Natchez, right. where as a team they preach and rob and just uh, sort of create lots of mayhem. What a, what a fascinating fast. combination. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. This is a, a little-known period of time. Could, do you, can you tell us a little more about that, that Aaron, about what, he, what, what he's doing with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, uh, he's, you know, set in 1799 um, in the Louisiana Territory, and then uh, when they go down to Natchez, you know, the, the whole preaching and robbing thing um, is a way for Wascom to really get into the pioneer spirit, lawlessness, and religious fervor, this sort of strange troika that existed uh, along the southern frontier of that time. Um, The character Angel in the book says, I believed crime was spiritual, robbery an act of faith. In the process, both parties were brought closer to God. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And uh, they reach the, eventually, through robbing and preaching and moving uh, along, they reached the Spanish-owned region uh, that was then known as West Florida, um, where uh, they ratchet up the violence and uh, the uh, outlaw tendencies, uh, getting even into murder um, again, of some lawmen. But in a spiritual way. <laughs> There's always a spiritual component. I mean, an, an Angel is a hugely fa- flawed hero, which mm-hmm. is what one of the things that makes the book so gripping. It's, first of all, incredibly well-written. It's mm. beautiful, lyrical, much like McCarthy's Blood Meridian, you know, which had that biblical language. Um, right. You know, to, yeah, sure. To, uh, which often obscured the horrific violence that was happening. And um, here it's, it's a lot of lyricism, um, but there are incredibly visceral descriptions of, of slaughter that, mm. uh, you know, will, are not for the you know, faint sure. of heart. Like in Blood Meridian. Like in Blood Meridian. But also there seems to be a little bit of the uh, a good man is hard to find Flannery O'Connor essence in that, perhaps just a hint yeah. of someone reaching, you know, yeah, spirituality. Yeah, what was the, uh, the 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 guy called in that um, the the outlaw, the criminal, the the, the I can't remember. <laughs> Great story. I love her. But um, yeah, and so Angel, the character in this, the the hero, um, is softened a bit by his uh, pistol packing bride, Red Kate, mm. um, and a handicapped son that they have. So he's a very complicated, you know, complex uh, guy. A lot of good, a lot of bad. Um, and uh, I think it's it's going to be a big book. Now, is this his first novel, or uh... Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is. Wow. And it's interesting to see someone really talking about religion in a historical context because I feel like I see a lot of historical fiction that sort of forgets what a huge, huge driving force religion of of many different kinds uh, was in the past. I mean, we we live in this sort of agnostic. 21st century in a lot of ways and you, you hear bits about the war on Christmas and so forth uh, there, there's, but there's, there's really not a sense of religion pervading people's daily lives and it can be easy to forget that that was what was going on in the past yeah absolutely that's a great point point. Um, and thinking about Blood Meridian even you know it's it, it's sort of uh, steeped in its own religion. You know, it's almost like a religion of violence. Uh, you know, I remember the characters like right. the judge, uh, you know, were uh, essentially, it seemed to me, almost amoral and, you know, uh, acted upon uh, laws almost of of excess mm. and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and when, which made for a, a very gripping read. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Fiction Editor, our Deputy Editor, Mike Harvkey. And he's talking to us about some forthcoming books, some books that uh, has gotten his attention. And uh, what else do you have now? Well, I uh, have a couple more books. Um, I'm seeing, you know, as, as always happens, every season you see certain themes, certain threads that uh, emerge, whether it's as simple as uh, similar covers uh you know sure or um debuts are really hot one season and then last time we talked short stories yeah right and, and at one point there were covers with feet a lot of uh, <laughs> memoirs and, and first novels with feet kind yeah. of dangling in water yeah and now we have a lot of the backs of heads a lot of the oh, necks oh, yeah. so this okay. is how oh, interesting you know people looking into the yeah. distance right, right. Right. Um. <laughs> Perhaps a sign of the times. Yeah. <laughs> more yeah. carefree feet dangling in water. And right. now we're, we're looking into the distance for answers. More pensive. Exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. We should track that. Uh, you know, yeah, right. uh, how that how that explains us. Um, so, two novels uh, coming out this summer. Um, s- both uh, deal with Russia um, in a way, really? and yeah, and and I've seen this even last year. You know, um, literary fiction seems to always have. Uh, and I cast uh, that direction. Um, you know, I, I remember a book last year um, that where the protagonist, uh, a girl, um, ends up going to uh, Russia, uh, looking, you know, being drawn there by an old letter. And um, you know, similar stuff is going on um, here. So the first one I'll talk about is Elliot Holt's "You Are One of Them," um, which is a June book. Um, Holt, uh, for her short stories, has won Pushcart Prize. And um, this is a novel, a debut novel, um, set in both the 80s and the 90s. Um, so she's dealing with the USSR. And it's two uh, young women who wrote letters um, into the Soviet Union uh, talking about freedom and whatnot in the 80s. And one of them ended up uh, going there. And in the 90s, um, the other one, uh, is uh, on a quest to try to discover uh, what exactly uh, became of all of that, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's uh, it's it's a very uh, textured um, novel, and and Holt herself has spent time in Russia, so there's some authority there. Right. Um, and the other Russian novel is uh, Anthony Mara, who was a Stegner Fellow, and it's a constellation of vital phenomena. Uh, and this was a book that I put on the top 10 announcements along with the uh, Elliot Holt. So we've got out of those 10, you know, two of them are set in Russia. And Mara uh, takes it a, a decade uh, closer to the present by uh, setting his story mostly in 2004 in um, the Republic of Chechnya uh, right. during the second war there. So it's a very tumultuous time. Very tumultuous time. And it's a really gripping novel about... Uh, that takes place over a few days in a uh, small village, um, primarily in a, uh, in a in a hospital um, where some doctors are holed up. So uh, during the summer, I guess this is how we get away from the heat, <laughs> is by, by going off to the, the frozen north. Yeah, I guess so. And you can always count on Russia for, you know, some frozen north. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for that summer preview. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Always nice to have you on. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, uh, like the questions that we read out earlier, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter because we would love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.